Temple Grandin's unique relationship with and the deep understanding of animals has literally changed global thinking. In part four of our four-part Animal Passion interview, Temple offers general advice that's especially relevant to us at Aliquot Animal Refuge, advice that every animal lover can learn from. Difficulty breathing, difficulty walking, and here's a picture of a bulldog from 1938. That's a picture that's in the New York Times. It's called Bulldog's Dilemma. You can find it on Google for pictures. How did you get from that to that? I mean, how did you, how did that happen? I'm also very concerned about animal breeding. You've got bulldogs that can't breathe, can't walk, can't have the babies naturally. Um, I know think people are now starting to do something about it. I've got problems with farm animals. If you just breed them just for meat, then they get leg problems. But in any animal... If you overselect for an appearance trait, a performance trait, or a production trait, you're going to end up wrecking your animal. And the problem is people don't know where to stop. And the pets are just as guilty on this as the farm animals. I'm so glad you touched on that because that's something that, that we, we face all the time. As an animal rescue, we take in these animals that are discarded by breeders because they have so many issues and because they have so, gen- so many genetic problems because of uh, because of the way they're bred well and it's across a lot of different animals that uh, do things with breeding breeding horses just breed for speed you get weak bones and then they can just break a leg while just galloping on a track that has nothing wrong with it and i read in one of your books that you talk about socialization for all sorts of animals you talked about the ages that puppies should be socialized well we need to be uh, you know working with puppies and They've got to learn toddlers are people, too, and you've got to make sure when you introduce the puppy to toddlers, they're not grabbing it and hurting it. It's very important for an animal's first experience with a new person, place, or piece of equipment, especially at the vet's office, is a good first experience. But the problems I'm seeing now, dogs being afraid of stuff, it's much worse than it used to be. And I think it's from not getting exposed to enough stuff. This is obviously something that we face every single day. So we take in animals from mass cruelty cases or neglect cases or hoarding cases, or we get young dogs that are returned because they've never had that socialization or they were orphan dogs. So how can you guide us on on what to do with those animals? What's the best thing for them psychologically to to overcome the fear that they have? Well, first of all, you got to know something. If you know something about the handling history, you know, have they been just neglected, left some places alone, or were they beaten up by people? Fear memories can be very specific. In my book, Animals in Translation, there's the black cat horse. And the black hat, hat horse was terrified of um, of black cowboy hats because right. during a medical procedure, he got alcohol chucked in his face. Uh-huh. White cowboy hats were fine. Black hats were bad. You see, fear memories is usually something they were seeing or hearing when something bad happened. Okay. You see, an animal is a sensory-based thinker, not a word-based thinker. Right. Now, what if you don't have that information? Because I call then it un- you have to just yeah. sort of guess. Right. Um, a real common um, generalization dogs make is guys are bad. That's a real common one because if they've been abused, it's oftentimes more likely to have been a, been a guy. Right. You know, if the dog was just chained up alone somewhere, probably going to be afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. And I was just visiting my good friend Camille King, and she's done some really good work on things like uh, how willing people would be to adopt dogs with medical problems and other behavior problems. And she said in some cases you need to just sit in the room with it let it come to you, that if you go at it too much, it just gets scared. 
So thankfully, we have some people like that, that that volunteer with us and foster with us and are able to take some of these dogs into their homes. And they label them, our veterinarian labels them as um, flight risk. They scare so easily. And if a door opens and they're gone. They may just take off. Yeah, they may yeah. just take off. And one of the things a lot of dogs get afraid of now is fireworks. That's right. And um, dogs can just take off, you know, run half a mile down the street and then go hide in somebody's garage somewhere or, or some other thing like that. My dream would be to have silent fireworks like they have in Europe because we watch just last year, my neighbor right at the at the refuge next to the horse barn crossed the state line into Alabama and was able to buy like legit professional fireworks. They were so loud, Temple, I can't even tell you. I have a horse and when the fireworks went off, she jumped the fence. I've seen animals where, you know, like down in Mexico and stuff like that, the grazing cattle along the side of the highway and They've seen everything. Nothing scares them. I remember years ago going on a trip to the to the Philippines, and they had cattle that were hauled or broke the lead, and they just oh. had them on the deck of a ship tied to the <gasps> handrail. No. And, no, seriously. And they were totally used to it. It was no big deal. I can't even imagine. No. It, you see, if they're brought up gradually being introduced to these things, especially if they're with the mother animal, and the mother animal shows them that, you know, grazing along the highway is nothing to be afraid of, they, then they're fine. They've seen everything. And where you're going to see an animal's genetic temperament is when it suddenly has sudden novelty shoved in its face. Okay. And the animal that has the more high-strung nervous temperament will have a bigger reaction than the animal with a calmer temperament. That's where you'll see the big genetic differences. You talked about some of those dogs that have that um, separation anxiety, and, and you said that sometimes it is good to get a second dog. Well, sometimes it would be. There's genetic differences in how needy dogs are, but also, I heard like a case, a good friend of mine just recently, her dog had been, you know, she'd go into work, you know, before COVID hit, her dog would be at home, never a problem. Okay, during COVID, you know, they were home with it most of the time, but sometimes would go out, the grocery shop or whatever. And then they spent two weeks in their camper, where the dog was with them 24-7. This dog had, was left home alone in the house when she went to work, and it chewed up, completely wrecked a door. And it had never done that before. So so what recommendations do you have for now? This seems to be like something a lot of people are going to be dealing with. Well, I think we need to be start to train the dog to tolerate increasingly long periods of being alone. So you might start off the quiet for 10 minutes, then you'll reward it. And then you know, it's half an hour. So it's gradually learns to be separated because this dog, after spending 24-7 in the camper, uh, had to um, relearn uh, that he could be alone. So I want to talk about dog trainers, the negative reinforcement, everything. You know, I know you, you mentioned Caesar Milan a lot in your books um, and that he wants to be the pack leader of the animals. Well, that I think you, there, you see different animals have different you know, how easily they get scared. Okay. And um, you take an animal, and it's often called shy or bold in some of the animal personality literature. They call it a shy animal or a bold animal. Okay. And the more bold animal that doesn't get afraid, um, if you, it, it, it's not going to get as stressed. But you take an animal that's um, high fear and you start being rough with it, that animal probably can get a PTSD-like condition. And you say that, that pet owners should be more of a parent to these dogs. Well, yeah. Then there's some dogs that, you know, get really pushy, kind of aggressive. And 
You maybe need to tell them to sit before you feed them. Mm -hmm. But that's not doing anything aversive. Just teaching them patience, right? Yeah. They're going to have to wait. We get problems sometimes with cattle that can get very, very tame. And you, uh, same thing with horses. And you're going out to put the feed out and they're shoving and pushing and stuff. And Well, if you put the feed down when they're shoving and pushing, now you've rewarded shoving and pushing. That's not something that you want to reward. You know, wait for them just to stand for just a second, then put the feed down. Because you don't want to accidentally reward pushy behavior around gates, you know, or around small vehicles like four by fours, which animals are very capable of tipping over. <laughs> you know, I related to what you discussed about the the two steers that you became friends with. Yeah. And, and you went in with them when they were growing up. I had two um, two, two cattle that I raised from a uh, uh, milk production plant, yeah. and I got them at a week old. And, and I can very much relate to what you said about how pushy they got. And one went in well, between your legs. Well, that's just it. And then after uh -huh. that, I wouldn't go in the pen with them. Right. I'd make them stick his head out through the fence. Yeah. But I didn't know as much as I know now. And what I would have done now is I would have tried to get beside him. I would have stroked him on the throat because then they'll put their nose up towards the sky, and that's a real submissive posture. And okay. then I didn't know about this whole problem of accidentally rewarding pushy behavior. I had no idea that was submissive behavior. Yeah, if you behavior. stroke them on the neck on cattle, they'll sometimes just point the nose right up to the sky, and that will take a lot of pushy behavior out of them. Animals that are, you know, that you're going to keep in a, you know, captive situation, you've got to give them the things that they do in the wild. You know, look at what the animal does in the wild. I really like the Jack Panskep seven emotional systems. Okay. And you have fear, and then you have um, anger, then you have separation distress, he calls it panic, which is a separate emotion, like this horse that was whinnying, I think he got separated from another horse. That might be separation distress. Then you have seek, the urge to explore. Um, some animals are high seek, some are low seek. And of course, you have the sex drive. You got mother young nurturing, licking and mutual grooming between animals. And then you've got play. And let's look at what that animal does in the wild. Things like polar bears pace a lot because they walk great distances. Uh, horses will get mouth stereotypes like cribbing because a horse spends a lot of time grazing. Mm -hmm. So to enrich the environment, you need to give it things that duplicate some of the stuff it does in the wild. Okay. And then you can prevent stereotypies. Like you take broiler chickens, for example, they like to um, climb up on things. They also like to hide under things. Because back when they were red jungle fowl, um, you know, they'd come out in the light to feed, but then hide under the bushes so the hawk wouldn't find them. So there's also an instinct to hide. And obviously that depends on if they're prey or predators, correct? Well, chickens would be prey. Correct. People underestimate fear. Okay. And I remember one time talking to a wildlife specialist, and he was talking about capturing otters in a net. He says, well, I hold it down for just 30 seconds in order to tag it. And I said, well, what if you walked over in that parking garage and somebody knocked you over and grabbed your wallet, and that took 15 seconds? You'd be really stressed. Right. In fact, we did an interesting experiment with horses. Let me tell you about tell this me. experiment. We went into a stable that was very much like this stable right here. And Megan Corgan, my student, took a children's play set. And um, they had a little colorful plastic slide. It's about, you know, this high, this big square, and put it in an alcove and walked fillies and colts by it. And when you first walked them by it, you know, they would stop. This was all done at a walk. 
And the reason for doing this study was to try to explain why a horse just might spook and you don't think there's a reason for it. Well, I'll tell you, there was a reason. So you walk, she walked the fillies and colts by it, and they were halter broke fillies and colts, but no other training, until they stopped reacting. And they just measured uh, stopping nostril flarings and putting the head up like that. Now, if you'd been doing that at a gallop, you would have been dumped. That's right. Well, now when you rotate that thing, it turned into a new object. Like if this was the slide, okay, it looks like this, and you rotate it, now it looks like that. Now, the thing is, a person riding a horse would go, even if it was rotated, would go, that's just a child's toy. I don't have to be afraid of that. Or that's just a wheelbarrow. Now, horses see wheelbarrows, so it's not likely to be afraid of that. We've got to be showing horses all kinds of different things. Yeah. Balloons, flags, and bikes. They're the big three that cause animals to spook when they go to shows. And then at a riding clinic I visited up in Montana, we took a big, weird, green plastic chair that they had. Now they were mounted western. I said, we're doing it as a walk. And we're going to walk by that chair until the horses no longer stop or um, uh, look at it. And then turn the chair 90 degrees. There was probably six or seven horses there, and three of them did hard stops. When you introduce a horse to something new, let's say a children's play set, right. you need to walk them around it. Okay, in therapeutic riding, you've got things like walkers and wheelchairs. Right. They need to be introduced to these things, and you walk them around it so they will see it at all angles. And Megan is um, was my student, and she's got a very nice paper published on this now on rotation of a reaction of a the horses to a complex rotated object. I don't remember the, in the American quarter horse. I don't know why a journal article reviewer insisted that we put down American quarter horse. I don't really know why they insisted on that, but we, that's the title. It was a very nice study to show why a horse might be appearing to spook for no reason. And spooking, um, Megan did a good job of reviewing the literature, major cause of serious horse accidents. Of course. Major cause. And so that's a study, that's one of the most recent uh, studies we've gotten published right now. Okay. And I'm really pleased about that study. So you have to be proud that you have these legacies that you've created that, that are following. No, I'm really, I'm yeah. really um, pleased about that. But now what I've learned is you need to get animals accustomed to many different places. A lot of dogs today, they're just afraid of everything. And I think it's because they're not exposed to enough different things. Be sure to check the first three parts of our interview. And for more information about Temple, go to templegrandin.com. I'm Laurie Hood. Thanks for listening. For more information, go to aliquad.org backslash podcast. And be sure to check out the video versions on Laurie Hood's Difference Makers YouTube channel.